It's been a week of mixed news, but I see a bit of silver lining in that Alexei Peresev, the developer of Tornado Cash, who's been in jail in the Netherlands for six months on a financial crimes charge that we think is pretty fallacious, he might be getting out on bail to go home to his family in the next few days if things go well. Right. Alexei, who had the crime of creating open source software that others used for nefarious purposes. And, you know, they're letting him out uh, on April 26th, which happens to be his birthday. A birthday present from the Dutch authorities. And they're also giving him an ankle monitor to go with that present. I wonder if he has to pay for it. You know, that's a big moneymaker here in the States. If you get bail, you have to pay a third party company for the monitoring, the ankle monitor and everything. It looks like maybe there's going to be a hearing on May 24th. So he'll be home for just under a month before the hearing starts, perhaps. But generally for nonviolent crimes, you don't have to be in jail during the hearing or trial process. But it seems like maybe some of our American-centric assumptions around due process in a criminal case might not be true in the Netherlands because he was arrested and held in jail for six months on a nonviolent criminal charge, and it seemed pretty Kafkaesque. Because just to review, Tornado Cash was a smart contract on Ethereum that essentially created eCash in the smart contract. So eCash is a digital token that's in many ways nearly perfectly private. And what's cool about Tornado Cash was you sent Ethereum into the Tornado Cash smart contract. And when other people sent Ethereum into that smart contract, it all mixed together. It was like a, a beautiful, perfect coin join. And then you got some token or some secret to withdraw Ethereum from the smart contract later. And so when you did that, because of Ethereum's account-based model, there's no UTXO to track. So when I send Ethereum in, Chris sends Ethereum in, I take Ethereum out. We have no idea if it was my Ethereum or Chris's Ethereum. And if there are hundreds or thousands of people doing that, it's super, super private. So really cool. What were the drawbacks? The drawbacks were it's Ethereum. It's a smart contract. It was really expensive. It didn't make sense to do if you weren't transacting thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars of volume. It was mainly used, or not mainly, but it, a large user of it was the Lazarus Group, the North Korean hacking group that's been going around hacking DeFi and Ethereum-based protocols, and then using the funds to fund North Korea's many nefarious activities, which includes their nuclear program. So this really triggers U.S. law enforcement when they see things on a blockchain that might tangentially be helping North Korea's nuclear program. And I think it didn't help Alexei that there was some confusion about how much involvement with the smart contract he as a developer had, because there was a Tornado Cash kind of DAO-like organization that sold tokens. So I think that because he was doing some financial, maybe securities offering, maybe illegal securities offering stuff in the vicinity of Tornado Cash with a similar name, it's easy. I don't know if it's easy, but you know, you can conflate those things and hit him with a criminal charge. That's my two cents on the context. I'm concerned. It just seems so like beyond their technical capabilities. I mean, can you imagine having to explain Ethereum and smart contracts and then a tor what Tornado Cash was and then trying to explain why people might want it beyond privacy? It's a hard argument to make, especially in that particular context and the overall technical understanding required. It's I feel for this guy. And I think six months in jail already before he's even had a trial is sending a message to others that might want to create something like this, that your life will be destroyed. Even if the trial were to somehow go favorably for him, he's already spent half a year locked behind bars 
unable to live his life freely. That sounds pretty awful to me. Sounds like he's already been punished. And then he has to go in front of a judge who might be 60 years old, who doesn't have a clear sense of what kids are doing online and explain Ethereum and smart contracts. That's a big lift. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, April 21st, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with... With me, Chris. Hello there, everybody. Welcome back. On this week's show, we're going to discuss a proposed treasury buyback program from the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee, a committee that advises the U.S. Treasury. If that sounds dry, stay tuned. There's some juicy bits. In energy, Germany has shut down its remaining nuclear plants after a multi-decade political process to sort of tilt the country anti-nuclear. There's some interesting history there, and I think it kind of is an interesting test case in how political and social processes can be kind of irrational, and once they gain momentum, they move in a certain direction, and I think there are some lessons there for Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. In privacy, Trezor, a hardware wallet, has added a CoinJoin integration for user privacy, but it's through Wasabi Wallet's ZK Snacks coordinator that does chain analysis on inputs. This is a very controversial topic and an opportunity to talk about privacy on chain, its importance, and trade-offs. Also, Molvad VPN, my favorite VPN provider who has still yet to sponsor our podcast, was served a warrant and unable to turn over user data because they don't collect it. So we can just applaud them there, give them some kudos. And then in Bitcoin education, we're going to talk about Bitcoin's security model and to see if some recent critiques of this model are worth talking about. Are they FUD? Are they in good faith? We'll get into all of that. Then we have some feedback and boosts. And that's our show. I'm looking forward to that show. Now, Chris, who is your favorite member of the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I'm I'm always uh, I got, you know, the T-back trading cards, of course. So I'm always uh, trading the different heads. But I hate to play favorites. You know, Dad, uh, all the TCAC members are, uh, of course, important to me. But I have a soft spot for anybody that has the title of vice chair. So uh, Deldrin Dunn, you know, vice chair is a great name. And of course, they're from that bank that screwed me so many times. How could I not appreciate them? Citigroup out of New York. So, you know, they're got to be great, right? Because of course, the chair is also from New York. They're from Goldman Sachs. So the two top heads, both from New York, both from the two big banks. So I, yeah, I always I always have to lean to to the vice chair because I love the name. But chair would be a good one too. good old Beth. <laughs> So the U.S. is a country of public-private partnerships. And I think one way to describe that is sort of institutionalized corruption. Fascism. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Another way to talk about that is that, you know, the U.S. recognizes that private enterprise is very dynamic and has skin in the game to understand how the world works. And so harnessing that knowledge for the purpose of government is a good idea. So the U.S. Treasury has an advisory committee that's made up of individuals who generally work at large uh, financial companies. So there are representatives from PIMCO, a huge bond company, from Bridgewater Associates, which is Ray Dalio's, I believe, hedge fund. Morgan Stanley, BlackRock. 
Fidelity, Vanguard, all of the big financial players. And they're all doing slightly different things, but they're generally legacy finance insiders is the theme. What this group does is they submit, I believe, quarterly reports to the Secretary of the Treasury, which is Janet Yellen. These reports have some economic analysis, economic outlook, and then they also cover recommendations. And so there was a report submitted on February 1st, which is very interesting. They talk a lot about the economic forecast, and they're actually forecasting some of the downturn that we're currently in. Full disclosure, I think that we are currently in a recession. I think we called it very early, which is another way of saying we were wrong by calling it early, perhaps. But the really interesting section has to do with the Treasury is currently undergoing extraordinary efforts to prevent financial system issues relating to the U.S. debt ceiling. So the U.S. is currently in a debt spiral. There's no way for the U.S. government to continue normal operations without issuing about a trillion dollars of debt every, I think, quarter, so around $4 trillion a year, roughly. Please boost in if you have a more accurate number. And because there is a debt limit, uh, which has to be raised, I think, roughly every year, there's a periodic political crisis, which disrupts the issuance of debt and disrupts government operations. And the Treasury can fudge that for a while, But as they fudge that, they sort of risk uh, issues like potentially a temporary U.S. government default. And it's funny because they have to talk very carefully about a government default because the U.S. dollar, like all currencies, even Bitcoin, are essentially based on trust. And I know that's a little anti-Bitcoin to say, like, oh, Bitcoin is based on trust. But there is a trust that the system of Bitcoin works. With the U.S. dollar, the trust is that the U.S. government will continue to pay its debts. And so they can't really say too clearly what would happen if that were to not be the case, if the government were to default on its debts, to not honor those obligations. Because the truth is, if there were a default, it would probably start as a people would laugh it off. Oh, okay, the government's very dysfunctional. So there are a few debt payments that have not been paid. And then I think that very quickly, that would turn into an absolute disaster that would have far-reaching consequences all around the world. But if you were to say how terrible that was, you might panic people. And so there's always this very cautious tone in these pronouncements. However, after talking about the issues of the debt ceiling, this committee then talks about the potential design of a regular and predictable treasury buyback program to improve cash management and support liquidity. This is a program that would essentially buy U.S. government debt that is at a longer maturity and replace it with government debt at a shorter maturity. It's very interesting because this doesn't improve the government's financial situation. What it does is it actually could could sort of hide the signal from U.S. government debt markets that financial system participants are preparing for a financial crisis. Something that I've heard over and over, even since we first started speculating about a possible recession, is this inversion of the yield curve. And, uh, you know, I've even heard terms like the yield curve is sharply inverted. And that seems to be a signal, but I don't really wrap my head around how or what it is. What we imagine is that as you borrow money for longer and longer periods, you'll sort of need to be 
paid a premium for a longer period because the longer that someone else is holding the money you've lent them, the more things that could go wrong, right? They could, you know, just die or something. And so if we think about bonds in this very simple way, then you would imagine that the interest rate on one-month bonds would be lower than the interest rate on two-month bonds, which would then be lower than the interest rate on three-month bonds. And so you'd have this sort of, if you uh, charted the interest rate of different length maturity assets, it would be this line going upwards. Because if you're lending money for, let's say, 30 years, because the U.S. does have a 30-year bond, the interest rate would be quite high relative to a one-year bond, if that makes sense. Because there's a lot more risk lending money for 30 years. We can't predict inflation for 30 years. It could be anything. But maybe for one year, we have like a better guess on inflation risk and, and other risks. Does that make sense? That there would be a, essentially a, a premium the longer you're lending money. When the yield curve inverts, it means that shorter term bonds are actually yielding higher interest rates than longer term bonds. And when you think about lending from a very simplistic kind of textbook economic standpoint, that seems crazy. Why would people do that? And the answer is that there are a lot of reasons, but the TLDR is that when there seems to be premiums on certain short-term treasury assets, that's generally because there's some kind of financial hedging activity going on. Because short-term treasury assets are a form of financial money that can be used in various institutional financial transactions. They're generally more useful for certain types of financial market hedging than dollars in a bank account even. So what the TBAC committee is proposing is taking long duration bonds that nobody seems to want and actually buying them and replacing them with shorter duration assets that seem to be in high demand. One way of looking at this is the committee saying, hey, Treasury, by the way, we're all financial institutions and this Treasury market is looking very fragile and you need to provide more short-term treasuries and this is a way to do it without actually raising the total amount of debt outstanding. Another way to look at it is that this is the sort of facility you would need in place to do yield curve control at the treasury level. Not just the Fed trying to control interest rates on U.S. government debt, but also the treasury getting involved in that game as well. And I think that both things could be true. Though, because this proposal comes from legacy banks, I think that the likely motivation is that they are concerned about a lack of short maturity treasuries that they use to do day-to-day -day financial operations and that there is a shortage of these. And, you know, they want the treasury to step in and essentially provide a supply of short-term treasuries to enable these institutions to avoid liquidity crunches and things like sort of what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate. It feels like it's sort of a countdown, like we're waiting for a financial shoe to drop and everybody's sort of holding their breath. And the longer we wait, the almost more certain it seems to become. Yeah, the Federal Reserve notes that were released said that they expect a uh, recession towards the end of the year and early next year. Uh, the U.S. Treasury had, um, you know, a summary out and in there they expect uh, essentially a recession. So they're beginning to make plans for different instruments to prepare for that. Sort of seems like economic death is beginning to set in and we're all just kind of beginning to capitulate to it. I don't mean to sound like a chaos monkey, but I, I almost wonder if I, I kind of some of some people like me might almost want it. 
to reset real estate prices a little bit, to tamp inflation down so that way the money I do have isn't taken from me silently. And, you know, to kind of crush some of these ridiculous growths that we've seen in the last 13 years, thanks to easy money, and kind of just maybe get back more to a baseline. And it seems like a recession, sort of like a bear market is sometimes healthy for Bitcoin. A a bear market overall might be a good thing for some. It's not going to be great. It's always with a lot of pain. And sometimes we never recover, but nothing else is working. I don't know. It's this weird state of mind I find myself in about it. It's kind of like this watching this impending economic doom and almost kind of behind underneath all of that, I sort of want it to happen too, because it just feels like everything's gotten so out of whack. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like that's the emotion behind a lot of populism, maybe a sense that the status quo is somehow wrong or unfair or just there's something wrong with it. And if there could be this kind of cleansing event, and I think that's a lot of populist political messaging. There's this sort of political savior and they're going to cleanse the system and rejuvenate it or something. And and maybe we're kind of projecting that onto economic cycles. I don't think that that would actually really happen in a recession because it's pretty clear that there is a political process of bailouts during every recession. And while I think everybody in the United States who received a stimulus check felt like that was great and liked it, the truth is that the major stimulus during the pandemic in the United States was the Paycheck Protection Program, which was basically free money to anybody who owned a business that met certain criteria. It was a massive bailout to large companies and already quite wealthy people. And that's, I think, very politically problematic because what seems to be happening over time is tax rates in the United States are lower the wealthier you are, the effective tax rate. This is obviously kind of a complicated subject because it involves how do we tax assets and you know other forms of income that aren't you know traditional salaries. But essentially, salaries are very easy to tax and generally poorer people earn salaries, wealthier people own assets that generate income. And so it just means that the poorer you are, the higher your effective tax rate, the harder it is to build wealth and sort of maintain it over time. And there are other little gotchas in the U.S., the way that healthcare costs just eat up everybody's family wealth at the end of their life. You know, that's that, that's also sort of part of the story. And then if you're in a privileged, wealthy group, you always get more bailouts than everybody else. So I don't think a recession is going to fundamentally change this dynamic. Right. How many recessions has Warren Buffett lived through? And he's doing quite well. And he's always the beneficiary of types of these types of policies, just as an example. You're right. Yeah. He, he always gets those sweetheart deals because he keeps a lot of cash around so he can come in and quote unquote bail stuff out at the last minute and end up owning things for a very attractive price. I totally get that that sense of if only something could happen, even if it were potentially rough on us, maybe if it would if it would make things fairer. But um, history tells us that rarely happens. We also had a article from our favorite financial blogger, Wolf Richter, about how essentially if you look at the sudden plunge in yield on the one month treasury bill, this is not an inversion. This is like a what, whatever the opposite of an inversion is. The one month yield uh, fell by 164 basis points, 1.64% in a very short amount of time. And that's just 
absolutely unprecedented. And what's interesting is that this yield is now under the interest rate you get if you just like park funds with the Fed. So if large banks aren't arbitraging out this spread, selling these securities and then parking money in Fed accounts, it speaks to some serious hedging activity. And so uh, financial stress is is probably accelerating uh, based on this uh, sort of fall in yield on the one-month treasury bill versus the two-month treasury bill. What's interesting is that we're seeing all of this negative financial market news, but you know, Bitcoin had this big rally from like 16,000 to 30, and I think it's fallen back a little bit now. And whenever there's one of these rallies, I always think, oh, geez, that's it. Bitcoin's running away. It's going to be at 300K before I know it. And that's it. I bought my last Bitcoin. You know, that's the emotional FOMO, I feel. But then when I look at the financial market news, I think, gosh, things look pretty rough. Like, I feel like it, like, logically, it would probably fall a lot too if this news eventually gets priced in. That is, of course, a dynamic that I I look at these through. Okay. All right. Well, if I'm going to be stacking this year, I I think I'm going to wait to really go all in for a little bit. (laughs) And who knows? I've been wrong all year about the price, although as we record, it is beginning to slip back down. So there is that aspect of it. You know, I feel like we actually have a lot of things to work out, right? That's the the, the core challenges we face, the, the, the impending possible recession, not just in the U.S., but other places in the West. The, the other issue we'll have is once we begin to pull out of a recession, we're going to have a dynamic where we're going to hit constrained energy limits and we're going to hit high energy prices. Um, I don't know if you saw, but a very little bit of oil has begun to be released from the strategic reserve in the United States again. Um, we're already down like 37% and we've begun releasing just a little bit again. And we have we have a more expensive oil market building out there. Gas prices are up. That makes the goods go up, especially bad timing when the Fed's trying to fight inflation because you raise the cost of energy, you basically raise the cost of everything else. So it seems to me that if we do fall into a recession, that will sort of mask the high energy issue for a high energy price issue for a little while. But when we begin to pull out of that recession, we'll begin to hit into those high energy prices. And that's going to be, I, I just, I don't know how that dynamic's going to play out. And that very well could be right when the halvening is hitting. And so, um, you know, <laughs> miners are going to be getting less rewards. Energy costs could be going up. We could be still in an energy war for all we know. And governments around the world are making policies and changes to disadvantage their energy position and to put themselves in a more vulnerable energy position and a more vulnerable security position. It's happening right now as we speak. It's it's absolutely going to be the most wild next five to 10 years. I feel like we say that every episode. This, of course, is the news that the last three nuclear reactors in Germany are being permanently shut down, or I think they already have been. It's been a 20-year saga for the German nuclear industry to sort of hold on by its fingernails, and they've finally given up the ghost. And I thought that this is a interesting story, not just because we've been very interested in energy from the Bitcoin perspective, because Bitcoin mining consumes energy in a very predictable way, and Bitcoin miners are very sensitive to energy prices to the extent that they'd rather get cheap energy than consistent energy. And so they can sometimes act as potentially batteries on a grid, sort of, to balance demand and supply, depending on the characteristics of that grid. But in Germany, what we're seeing is sort of a very progressive push towards wind and solar power. And since the war in Ukraine began last year, 
this model has been somewhat disrupted because it turns out that to balance the supply and demand on a grid with a lot of wind and solar, you need on-demand thermal energy to jump in during peak load and balance out the sort of intermittent renewables with on-demand power. And that means natural gas or coal. And since Germany has lost access to Russian natural gas when the Nord Stream pipeline was blown up, they've actually added a huge amount of coal to their energy generation, which seems like literally the worst thing you could do if you cared about carbon emissions, because coal produces more carbon per unit of energy than literally any other energy source. So you would think if the choice was between coal and nuclear, you'd choose nuclear. But that was not the case in Germany. No, and it seems more for political reasons than scientific or geopolitical or, I guess, strategic security reasons. It was more a political party. This is one of their defining platforms and they came into power and they delivered on their promise. In some cases, if you look at the timeline, it seems major advances happened after maybe like some incident happened somewhere else in the world. That was an opportunity for policy to advance rapidly, especially under Angela Merkel. Right. The interesting thing about the German environmental movement, which I think is kind of um, represented by their Green Party, is that it's sort of mainly an anti-nuclear party. According to this article, in the 60s and 70s, Germany was sort of at the forefront of nuclear energy. But in the 80s, the Chernobyl accident, and I think the proximity of Chernobyl to Germany, because it's in Ukraine, really terrified large numbers of people about the potential for nuclear accidents. And so the Green Party really shifted into an anti-nuclear party during this period. This Green Party eventually forms a coalition with the Social Democratic Party, which I think is Germany's largest political party in 1998. And this kind of uh, solidifies an anti-nuclear movement in mainstream political policy. Then when you have the Fukushima event in 2011, this sort of accelerates the anti-nuclear push. And while I think a lot of people thought that the war in Ukraine would sort of shake this assumption that Germany had to go anti-nuclear just because energy prices have been up significantly in Germany. My sense is that whole sectors of the German economy just don't work anymore at higher energy prices because Germany has a large chemical manufacturing industry and chemical manufacturing is incredibly energy intensive. But it seems like, you know, possibly a combination of a pretty mild winter that didn't result in the sort of apocalyptic energy situation uh, for Germany that some people predicted created a sense of complacency. And so, you know, Germany is now a zero nuclear country. Ironically, they actually import a large amount of nuclear generated electricity from France, but that's neither here nor there. It was like mid to low 40 percent of all of their uh, source of power decades ago. And then, of course, as as this interesting little side effect, as this political process played out and these plants were shut down, the argument became, well, it's such a small percentage of our overall power generation. Why not just complete the job? It's such a it's such a small percentage. Well, it's a small percentage because they've been systematically shut down over the last 20 years. But OK. All right. I see your argument. And so um, I I was looking back at the chart of you know just where their power sources came from. And it was a significant, significant source of power for the country, you know, uh, halfway through my lifetime. 
And what's the broader story here? Because I think this is kind of a story from our perspective of a sort of emotional policy that was based around a fear of nuclear accidents. And our view, I think you agree with me, Chris, is that nuclear accidents are pretty rare. When they do happen, they're more scary than they are damaging. Obviously, Chernobyl was a massive accident. The whole city was rendered uninhabitable. At the same time, the Chernobyl reactor was a prototype design that never should have been built. Nuclear design is incredibly safe by the standards of the 1970s. Every nuclear accident in history has involved a 1970s, like first generation reactor. There's never been an accident or, or a serious, you know, uncontained accident at a second or third generation reactor. And now I think we're on like fifth or sixth generation. So it's a completely different technology with incre incre completely different levels of reliability and safety, but it's being treated like it's, you know, super dangerous. This is kind of a tragedy that the public perception is so negative when this is a, the facts show that this is a very clean and safe uh, technology. If somebody came out with a, you know, well-sourced expose that showed that uh, most of this anti-nuclear sentiment came from fossil fuel lobbyists and industry, I would probably not be too surprised uh, because this is exactly plays into the hands of the fossil fuel industry. It continues that, you know, and by the way, coal use way up, right? Coal, coal burning way up right now. Natch gas way up right now. There is a cost to this uh, besides uh, just what seems like an idiotic policy in the middle of an energy war when potentially one of their own allies bombed one of their own natural gas pipelines. Uh, but, you know, what do I know? I don't I don't know really anything about it. So I think the broader takeaway when I look at this history is that these very important policy decisions, they have a momentum to their own logic. Like yes. They have their own logic. Yes. They have their own momentum. They're not necessarily rational. And if we look at the U.S., I see that irrationality in the current push to essentially debank the entire cryptocurrency industry in the U.S. I've read a lot of articles about Gary Gensler's recent testimony in front of the Senate Banking Committee there have been, I think, two lawsuits recently against defunct U.S. crypto exchanges. One was, oh gosh, Bitre was it Bittrex or something? Another one was like DYDX. I'd never heard of them. And what I'm hearing is that these lawsuits, which are essentially against exchanges that did not register as exchanges with the SEC. Well, guess what? You know who else hasn't registered as an exchange with the SEC? Coinbase, Kraken, and Gemini, the major exchanges in the US. So it almost looks like the US regulatory apparatus is gearing up to kick our current model of digital currency exchange businesses out of the United States. And I think for some people, that's completely reasonable because they view crypto and Bitcoin as just a tool for financial speculation and money laundering. At the same time, it's a relatively large and growing industry. It seems to provide real use cases for international payments. And the existing banking system is getting less usable and less stable on a daily basis. So it doesn't seem like a very rational policy, but I don't think that matters. I think that that's probably what we're going to see. Serious crackdown and damn the consequences. There's um, a document or it was a testimony. I can't remember. I, 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 I've tried to source better when I mentioned this stuff, but Secretary Yellen actually disclosed that they do recognize that the weaponizing of the U.S. financial system does potentially challenge the uh, 
reserve status of the U.S. dollar. Like it adds, it is a, I can't remember the term they used, but like it adds to the risk that the the permanency of the U.S. dollar would remain. Is some They have some phrasing for it, but that they feel that it's strong enough that they can take this risk. I find it interesting that they are recognizing every time they use banking policy to try to make up for law enforcement or for strategic issues around the world, they recognize there is a cost to them, but they feel that they're so untouchable that they can go ahead and do it anyways. I think we were talking about this before we started recording about how in previous eras of sort of political and social change, we look back and we think, gosh, the elites really had every opportunity to make some concessions and maintain something pretty close to their status quo. But why do people always refuse to make concessions and essentially radicalize their opposition until you know something drastic happens or something serious breaks? It's, it's funny how we continually make that mistake as a civilization. Yeah, it's that, that whole history rhymes thing is you can change the circumstances and the amounts and the technology involved, but the human nature remains. <laughs> I, I was really surprised when I saw it. I guess I was surprised to see them admit that some some action like weaponizing the SWIFT system does cause some harm to the U.S. dollar used for trade and you know other uses. But I don't know, I guess I've never seen them admit that before. So that's what surprised me about it is the admission that it was that it was a thing. And also, I, you never really see them pre-call a recession, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, usually we call a, a recession is called like after two months of negative GDP. Right. And we've been into it for a little bit. And then they and then the economists from on high traditionally come out and say, we believe that the recession technically started on this day. And they pick like a date that's like three or four or five months back. And that's declared the beginning of the recession. I, I don't ever recall both the Treasury Department and the Fed meeting notes saying a recession is coming in the fall. Um, and so that, all that just it feels new to me, like admitting that they're, they're potentially harming the reserve status, admitting a recession is coming ahead of time. These feel like new concessions to the almighty dollar uh, managers. Well, I think there has been a lot of news about de-dollarization globally, and I was planning on talking about it next week in more detail, but there is news about the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, talking about using some sort of new trade settlement currency that's not dollar-based. Also news about liquid natural gas contracts being settled in Chinese yuan. Brazil and China had a meeting where they're talking about doing bilateral trade, not using the dollar, using their own respective currencies. I think that these stories build a narrative of a de-dollarizing world. At the same time, that's a very long process, and they don't really have a good alternative to the dollar right now. Any synthetic trade currency that a group of countries create is going to have a lot of the same political trade-offs that the dollar does, except instead of the U.S. reaping the exorbitant privilege of printing money, but also paying the cost of that, which is if you have this superpower, you also end up hollowing out your domestic economy uh, from the bottom up. So it hurts the poorest people in your country first and then works its way up the 
social ladder, some other country will have to fulfill that role. And so I don't think that's really a solution to the problems of a euro dollar based world. And I also don't think that it's possible to just construct an alternative. It's not like the euro dollar system was built by the US. There were some favorable situations post World War II that gave the dollar the opportunity to grow into an international payment network that was very useful to a lot of people who participated. And it's organically grew. I think that's the way that monetary systems work. You don't just declare it to be so and then everyone starts using it. I think the best example of that recently is the Chinese digital yuan, the digital currency project from the People's Bank of China that was announced a huge fanfare. Everyone was talking about how, oh my gosh, China's going to win at a digital currency and the dollar is going to be left behind. And then it turned out they couldn't even pay people to use it. It's just completely useless. So I think that a lot of the news is a little bit sensational. At the same time, it does highlight a trend that over years and decades is probably going to continue, which is moving away from the dollar towards other things, whatever that may be. And then once that once that's an idea in people's heads, once that's a possibility, it starts to pick up momentum. And then there starts to be more ways to do it. And it starts to have sort of a network effect of its own. That kind of sets the stage for all kinds of new ideas. You never know. Yes. Please give everyone a crappy CBDC digital currency, which teaches them how to use Bitcoin. Sounds great. As long as they all have hardware wallets, you know, we want to make sure everybody's doing self-custody and we want them to have good privacy and, you know, maybe even make certain features like coin joins easily accessible. I will admit when I first heard that Trezor was introducing built-in coin join to their wallet software, it got my attention. I actually ordered a Trezor with the intention of trying this out when they shipped the feature. Which Trezor did you get? It's the one with the little screen on it. I don't think it's the crazy expensive one. I, Of course, I'm sorry. I'm more of a cold card fan, but uh, I could look and tell you which one it is. It's the... Uh, it might be the Model T, actually. Maybe it's the nicer one, now that I'm looking at the two of them. Yeah, it's probably the Model T, because I have the old one that only has two buttons and a screen. You know, it's pretty rough. Well, I hate to admit that mine's still in the box. That's why I'm vaguely unfamiliar, because I was waiting for... I got it because of the idea. So they had... Supposedly, they were going to do KYC-less DCA and coin joins built into their wallet app. I don't like using their wallet app, but I could use it as an intermediary stage before I, you know, swept to like cold card or something. I don't know. Like I, I hadn't really f- figured out the strategy yet, but I'm a little disappointed in the details when I look and how they're actually implementing all this. And I think that that's kind of the theme I've had with Trezor, which is it's a little disappointing to see how it actually works. The Trezor hardware wallets have never had a secure element because of the cost of building a secure element in, which means that these hardware wallets are quite useful to segment your private key from your computer, except they plug into your computer. So they're not really that secure. You know, you have to assume that they've figured out a way to protect the USB connection from malicious software on the host computer. They always used a web wallet in the past, which you open a web page and this web page is sort of interfacing between your Trezor device and Trezor's centralized server, but theoretically executing 
the important things locally in your web browser and never bringing your private key into the web browser. You know, asking the attached treasure Trezor device to sign transactions and then, you know, sort of processing that in the web browser. That whole model, you know, I think it was very convenient for a lot of people to use because they were especially familiar with web wallets in the early days of um, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. There were a lot more web wallets before people realized how valuable Bitcoin actually is. At the same time, you know, it's it's really a workflow where you could lose all your funds by clicking on the wrong link. So I was always troubled by that. It was always difficult to use Trezor with your own node. They had a very manual solution to that, which I deployed once and it was pretty difficult. In the end, I moved to cold card just because it's like, um, you know, sort of like using a Mac as opposed to using a Linux computer. You think it's user friendly, but the moment you want to do something that is a little bit outside what they want you to do, it's impossible. That was sort of my experience with the Trezor. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of it. Oh, and also because it doesn't have a secure element, if I were to steal your Trezor, I can extract your private key using a guide on the internet and $100 of tools. So it's very different than the cold card, which requires like an electron microscope to do that. <laughs> and then you also combine it with the uh, truth that when you go into a restaurant and they have 200 things on the menu, they're never as good as the restaurant that has 10 things on the menu or five things on the menu, right? It's always the food at the restaurant that has fewer things on the menu is always better because they focus and really learn how to make those things great and please their customers. And that's the other reason why ultimately for me, the cold card makes more sense. However, if you want to give me a hardware signed way to DCA and coin join that's reasonable, that could absolutely play a role in my collection process, like essentially a warm wallet with a Trezor hardware backup. That's kind of what I thought maybe they would have if they had something compelling here. And to be honest, I don't know about their DCA system. I, I was waiting for the coin join stuff to come online. And now I'm kind of feeling like maybe I wasted my money. Just to clarify, when you talk about a lot of things on the menu, the issue with Trezor, again, is that Trezor supports a whole bunch of altcoins. So it's never going to be as secure as a Bitcoin-only product because they have to build in additional attack surface to service all of these altcoins. So that's an issue. The other issue with their CoinJoin implementation is they are partnering with ZK Snacks, which is the company, or ZK Snarks, ZK Snacks, the company behind Wasabi Wallet. And this company pays Chainalysis to scan CoinJoin inputs for bad history and then prevents them from coin joining if they are deemed to be naughty or dirty or criminal inputs. So should we talk about actually how coin joins work first or it's probably worth covering because I also kind of want to talk about uh, like a coin jam as well. Coin jam. I'm intrigued. What's that? Oh, oh, so the jam market is it's sort of more individual, bespoke, spun up uh, coin joins. And the jam market app, which is kind of like a web app, lets you manage that and you can run it on your own node. So you're using your node as the source of truth. This is the front end on top of join market, right? Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's really, really nice. Very easy to understand. It walks you through a multi-step process, like literally like one, two, three, do these, do it in this order. And it kind of makes it clear what, what it's doing for you. And I like that because it's bespoke. It's sort of spun up, kind of goes away. People come together. I think it probably looks a little more natural on chain, although I really have no idea. I'd like to know your input on that. I'm incredibly positive on Join Market, which was produced by Waxwing, a really cool OG Bitcoiner. 
who's a listener to the show, I heard. So boost in Waxwing, say hi. And Join Market has a very different model from the other two major coin join solutions on Bitcoin, which is Samurai Wallet and Wasabi Wallet. Samurai and Wasabi use a maker-taker model. So there's a central server that is coordinating the coin join. They're not taking custody of any funds, but you have to talk to the central server so that they can kind of connect you with the other 20 people who want to coin join and help that transaction happen. And so the central server can remove all the privacy from the coin join if it is compromised or malicious. So that's a risk there. With the join market maker taker model, what you do is you put funds into the join market wallet and then you basically say, hey, anyone want to coin join with me? I'll coin join for this fee. And you can also set the fee to zero as long as the, the taker pays the fee. And so put your funds out there. And then if someone needs some privacy, their software will coordinate with everyone who's got available funds and coin join with them. So the taker knows something about your UTXOs, but the maker doesn't really know much about the taker. So it's a totally different, more decentralized model. And it's been a bit harder to use, which I think drove adoption to Wasabi Wallet and Samurai because they made CoinJoin a little bit more easy out of the box. But now with this interface, I think that this might be the era of join market because with join market, you do not need to care about the Wasabi coordinator running chain analysis on inputs. You don't need to care about whether or not the coordinator is malicious. It's much more simple in that sense. You just put your funds out there and you say, hey, if you want to get some privacy, you can coin join with me. And the thing is, the maker gets some privacy from the taker, but it's like not at your schedule. If you need privacy right now, you become the taker and you pay people to coin join with them, if that makes sense. I will give a plug to Umbral and probably others, but Umbral makes it really easy to install the Jam app. And that's what I was talking about is that Jam sits it sits on your node or wherever you want to run it, anywhere that you can run Docker, I suppose, and but point it at your own node for privacy. And it gives you a really easy to use web interface to do all of this, including, you know, the possibility of setting up a bond where you throw some sats in there and help others mix and you just kind of stack some small amount of sats depending on how that all works for you. Oh yeah, it looks like it's on Citadel, Start9, Razbolt, Razblitz, and my note as well. I've been using it on and off for quite a while. I think it's a nice app and it makes it really easy to understand your ins and your outs and not mix them back up. And just a, a real great example of a complicated idea doing a coin join that, you know, has otherwise been kind of relegated to these two individual services that really do it well to now making it available to just about anybody that can start a, you know, an app on a, on a, on a self-hosted node instance. But I wonder though, dad, what your thoughts are on traceability of this behavior. So obviously one of the issues I have with the way Trezor is working is those snacks guys, those Z, Z snacks guys are cooperating with Chainalysis and they essentially pre-vet before they send, submit uh, to the coin join. They pre-vet through Chainalysis to see if these have been like, you know, flagged. But of course, Chainalysis is going to keep a record of everything that goes in and out. And so it sort of defeats the privacy aspect in some regards because you're getting screened by a chain analysis company that um, I don't trust very much. And it's feeding the beast. It's supporting them. And to be upfront, I think that all Bitcoin exchanges are paying chain analysis at this point because they're trying to be compliant with all of these financial surveillance laws. At the same time, they suck and they're anti-freedom. There's plenty of research that demonstrates that financial surveillance is just bad. It doesn't stop crime. It doesn't make the world a better place. It just is another way for institutions to threaten and control and bully individuals and to 
deny financial services and the ability to build wealth from the most vulnerable in society. So it's just bad. The other issue specific to Bitcoiners who might need some coin join is if the coordinator is saying, okay, only everyone who looks good gets privacy, then it's really not that useful in my opinion, because there might be a day when something happens and you need some privacy. Here's an example. When you buy UTXOs on a peer-to-peer marketplace, you might get a UTXO that's been flagged by chain analysis. You have no idea, no fault of your own. You just you know, got a UTXO that Chainalysis says is connected to a darknet market or something. Well, now you want to coin join that, but you won't be able to coin join that necessarily if you are using this Trezor Wasabi backed service. So I think that's a big flaw. And I think that something like join market seems a lot more open and fair because you just get to show up and people can coin join with you if you if they want. You can coin join with anybody you want. You get to decide how much it's worth to you. It it works out. It seems like a healthy market in my view. And it's a great example of tooling that makes something complex um, more accessible. And that tooling is just going to get more and more accessible and more available too. I think actually going to really be a, a future of distributed coin joins all over that sort of spin up when they're needed. Especially if you could use something like Noster as sort of a signaling system that is just, you know, based on NIMS that you could dispose of after the transaction. So you have kind of a signaling communications layer, perhaps through anonymized relays, and then you have bespoke spun up essentially portable jam apps. I mean, maybe it, it just the more we build, the more is possible. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by my show, Linux Unplugged. Go check out episode 506, where I do a just what you need to know about Noster without the hype. And I come at it from an angle of I really couldn't care about social media or a Twitter replacement. So what else is Noster good for? That is in episode 506, as well as two other surprise topics by my co-host that turned out great. I had no idea we're coming. It was a fun episode. Check it out at linuxunplugged.com slash five zero six. That's a very Bitcoin adjacent topic for a Linux podcast. That'll be great. I sneak them in every now and then, you know? And I guess because Noster is not strictly based on Bitcoin, it's uh, acceptable to the more anti-Bitcoin Linux listeners. Right. And, you know, there could be a free software angle. I, I wonder if you couldn't see distributed open source stack exchange competitors that are focused on free software and open source that are run on Noster. When you start to kind of decentralize the infrastructure and the protocol is really what everybody's writing to, that seems more sustainable for free software long term than depending on the goodwill of someone to keep your Apache server running. Yeah, I've been very skeptical about the scalability of Mastodon and frankly, even Matrix, because these federated systems replace a single well-managed server like Twitter with multiple more amateur managed servers with some of the same moderation issues. So yeah, it doesn't really seem to solve the fundamental problem. It's interesting, right? Because the Federation has its pros as well. I've heard from a couple listeners that found the podcast by finding our matrix chat rooms when they're on their own matrix server. So that's kind of interesting, right? Because there's sort of almost like an inherent network effect there. At the same time, I've also had issues where I can't chat with certain people because the home server they're on is having some sort of weird problem with my server or it's not something's not right. And there's just that extra fragmentation and variability. I mean, we usually tend to over time start to solve these problems, but you're, you're right. I'm feeling them these days. I am. I am kind of feeling them. This week's Bitcoin education is going to be a bit different because instead of going through Bitcoin Optech, we're going 
going to discuss Bitcoin's security model. This came to your attention from a tweet that was sort of suggesting that there's a problem with Bitcoin security over time. I actually thought this would be a fun one to talk about just because we hear this concern. You've probably seen this several times. I've seen it over and over again. And it's kind of like, hey, guys, you might like Bitcoin, but there's an existential crisis facing Bitcoin where eventually it's going to be too expensive to secure the network. And the rewards will be too low to incentivize participation in securing the network. It's all about to collapse. You just have to give it about 80 years. And this is, I think, based on a certain understanding of Bitcoin security. So I think we need to step back and say, what is Bitcoin security? What does a secure Bitcoin look like? And what does an insecure Bitcoin look like? Ooh, this is a good meta question. I mean, I think at a really high level, a secure Bitcoin is a provable, trustable, accountable record, right? It's it's you can you can be sure that there is only one of that UTXO. You can guarantee there's only one of those Satoshis. You you know it's it's a scarce asset. You know, like there hasn't been like this double spend or anything like that. Isn't that true security? Right. I think I agree. I think that from Bitcoin's perspective, security means that when you send a Bitcoin transaction and it gets mined in a block, it then gets buried under another block that builds off of that block. And, you know, within a few blocks, you can trust that that transaction will never disappear. It'll never, the chain history won't be rewritten. There won't be a a chain split or anything. And so you can essentially rely on Bitcoin transactions always having happened, if that makes sense. And to contrast that, we can look at chains like Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, which is Craig Wright's fork of Bitcoin, which has huge blocks, I think, you know, 400 megabyte blocks or something. And BSV uses the same hashing algorithm, SHA-256, as Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin miners occasionally attack the BSV chain for fun and profit. And so what happens is you're using BSV, you send a transaction to, you know, whatever, you send some BSV, you get some dollars, and then the person who gave you their dollars for BSV, 10 days later, they're looking at their wallet and suddenly their BSV balance changes because 10 days of transactions have just been revoked and a new history has been broadcast to the chain. And this is what it means to not have security. So how exactly are those transactions being rewritten? Well, they're secured with a wall of energy protected by cyber hornets. (laughs) There is no second best. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. You got it. (laughs) And we need a bingo card where we say there is no second best. (laughs) And then I say... Well, in my opinion, 19 times in one episode, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No kidding. The way that the Bitcoin blockchain creates a provable history is that every block is hashed and the hash of that block is put into the next block. And so there is this chain of hashes that tells the Bitcoin software the order of transactions and that they happen. And to change a single transaction, to change a single byte of data in any of these blocks will completely change the hash. And so if I go back 10 blocks and I try to change one transaction, that means that all of the blocks built on top of it will no longer be valid. So if I want to go back and, you know, reverse a transaction and sort of claw back, 
you know, a million Bitcoin that I sent to Coinbase and sold for dollars or something, then I need to have all of this hash power that can basically attack the chain, dig through all of these hashes, change a hash, and then rebuild all the hashes on top of it. Well, I mean, really, you just change a hash and then you have to like rehash everything to create a new history on top of it that's longer than the current chain so that nodes accept it as the true history. And that's very difficult and expensive. You know, no one can do it. I think that uh, CZ, when Binance was hacked, sent out a tweet like, hey, we're considering, uh, you know, forking the chain or something. And, you know, that, of course, that didn't happen. So even the CEO of the world's largest crypto exchange can't call up the miners and change the history of Bitcoin. So that's a model of security. Now, why do some people think that this Bitcoin security model is flawed? Their concern seems to be that as the issuance rate of the reward goes down over time, which it does, and the difficulty goes up, and I would also add, although this wasn't in the analysis, but I would also add, as we enter into a tighter and tighter energy market in the future, it supposedly will put such pressure, such downward revenue pressure on miners uh, and other operators that they'll just sort of capitulate and they'll kind of stop their operation because the issuance is too low to uh, make a profit. Right. And this is the transition from a block reward model to a fee-based security model. Yes. Transaction fee model. The way that Bitcoin issues new Bitcoin in a fair way is if you mine a block, you get the block reward from those Bitcoin. And this is a way to sort of apolitically issue Bitcoin into the world. And when you give them to miners, because miners have costs associated with mining, they also tend to just sell them off. So they don't accumulate massive Bitcoin positions necessarily. So it was a pretty good solution, I think, for issuance. And there's this chart, which is part of this tweet thread about the problems with Bitcoin security model. And it lists, you know, the year 2011 to 2023, and it shows the average market cap of Bitcoin, the annual security spend, and the percentage of market cap that the security spend represents. And what you can see is that the percentage of market cap is approaching zero. It goes from 46% in 2011 to 9% in 2015 to 1.7% in 2023 estimated. If you think that you need a large percentage of your market cap and block reward to maintain a secure Bitcoin network, this looks bad because the block reward seems to be approaching zero. So how is this thing secure? And I think the problem with this chart is that it's misunderstanding that it's actually just following the issuance of new Bitcoin. It's following the uh, sort of relationship between the issuance and the number of Bitcoin in circulation. It's not actually catching the, um, like, like that's, that's what's approaching zero. Bitcoin issuance is approaching zero. And the argument is that, well, if fees don't rise to sort of equal lost issuance, then Bitcoin is insecure. But she's not accounting for the scarcity pressure that puts on the price when the issuance schedule reduces. Exactly. And that's the thing. So I think that the argument that Bitcoin security is decreasing over time misses the fact that people don't seem to be less interested in Bitcoin as the issuance falls. Rather, the way that Bitcoin issuance decreases over time seems to mechanically squeeze the price upwards because for some reason, psychologically, humans 
who get into Bitcoin seem to stay into Bitcoin. Like we don't see people selling all their coins and rage quitting, uh, you know, when there are bear markets. Rather, we see people scooping up coins in bear markets and hodling them. I mean, the statistics on the blockchain bear that out. It's unbelievable hodl levels right now. People are just bearing down. And I think the, the reality is, is Bitcoin has utility. And so when you have something that has inherent utility and there becomes less of it, we're willing to pay more for that thing. It's basic. It's the absolute basic incentives of economics right there. And I think that has historically played out like we're not just like we're not just like kind of pondering perhaps this will happen this is what has happened over the entire history of bitcoin so far and the another way to think about the security spend of bitcoin is is it sort of percentage base you know do we think of a blockchain as secure if x percent of the value is spent on fees to miners or do we think of it as secure if there's just a there's a binary there's like an amount of money or amount of value that goes to miners that makes a chain secure and if you dip under that binary level now it's insecure honestly i think the binary is probably closer to the truth because what we can see on chains that get attacked is you know generally they're low fee chains but they they have uh you know a block reward based issuance or something but no one uses those chains for like storing wealth (laughs) (laughs) well exactly i don't know if you can even really compare them to bitcoin because they don't seem to have the same user behavior the same utility they're based on a similar blockchain consensus model but the use is just completely different and that's kind of the puzzling thing about bitcoin we say bitcoin and crypto because bitcoin is not crypto Why do we say that? Well, because the behavior of Bitcoin hodlers is really different than the way people use other cryptocurrencies. You know, other than, you know, a few people who've drunk the Kool-Aid, no other projects have huge communities that just, you know, build on top of it and like buy and hold it. All of these VC backed altcoins, you know, it's pump and dump all the time. There are no, uh, you know, long term hodlers. There are bag holders, people who buy the top and then watch their stash go to zero. But, you know, there's not like a sort of uh, social consensus around using it as a store of wealth. And I think that's kind of the, the trick about these crypto systems is that, yeah, it's a technological platform. But at the end of the day, what it's doing is enabling a social consensus that the thing is or is not money is or is not valuable. Yeah. And this hodling process is part of, is part of that monetization process of the asset. And it just all kind of is magic how it all lines up. It isn't ready to be the reserve currency of the world. It isn't ready to really be, you know, a standard currency for any place probably larger than about El Salvador right now. It's getting there, but it's, you know, we need more work done still. And so it's kind of amazing that it's in this maturing phase while we're hodling, while the macroeconomic situation is playing out that basically creates the very scenario that Bitcoin was born to solve. And this this utility of Bitcoin, um, I think, is what will continue to keep it in demand. And when it continues to stay in demand, uh, the network will remain secure because there will be transaction volume and transaction volume equals fees. And that's kind of explains itself. Um, I think it would be really kind of funny and maybe you and I won't be here for it, but I think it'd be kind of funny if we got some hindsight after, you know, some some sort of Bitcoin standard has been realized. If we look back and go, huh, geez, it's actually surprisingly cheap comparatively to run secure 
hard money that works around the world. When you contrast it, eventually what we might need to maintain the network versus what runs financial institutions today, like I've told you before, I was at a small local bank. We had well over 100 servers, almost 200 servers at one point, just to run 40 branches. And we weren't, you know, we weren't even doing some of the stuff they're trying to do today. So I, I think we'll look back at perhaps what she's getting at in this quote unquote critique here, what Maria Hurley's getting at. We may actually look back and go, geez, look how cheap it is actually to maintain the Bitcoin network. Ultimately, it might just be a different viewpoint. Another view on fees to miners reducing as a total market cap of Bitcoin is that Bitcoin security actually might get more efficient as the network of Bitcoin usage scales. And that's a nice property. And also ASICs may get more energy efficient, right? The the ASIC and mining technology and how we do it is very early. We're, we're like a decade into ASICs. The ASICs have only been around for a part of Bitcoin's entire lifetime. I mean, you're talking to a guy who bought one of the first Butterfly, Butterfly Labs ASICs and it was like pathetic in speed. And it's still new, but they're getting better and faster and more energy efficient. Intel, they've canceled the project now, but they had cracked a real nice compromise Bitcoin miner that was still pretty performant, but used something like 40% less power. Now scale that across an entire data center of rigs, and that's game changing. And maybe Intel won't bring it to market, but eventually somebody else will. So the cost to run these units may potentially go down as well as society just evolves its technology, which so far it always has. So there's also that unknown element. It's hard to like really pin that down, but you can kind of almost bet on it. It's also going to change the cost and economics to running mining equipment. Right. And I think that looking at hash rate over time and the relative hash rate across chains sort of speaks to where the adoption is and where the market is going. Because becoming a miner is a massive investment now. And even if you've got many, many small miners, you know, that's actually a pretty healthy miner ecosystem. A lot of people are coming to the same conclusion to make investments moving in the same direction. And so I think that the upward trend in Bitcoin hash power speaks to increasing security or at least not decreasing security over time. These arguments that, oh, as the fees decrease, miners will have an incentive to attack the network because they can perform financial speculation where they short the market and then attack it. I think these are pretty crazy statements because, sure, you can make a short-term profit potentially if you have the skill to crash Bitcoin price in a certain direction. But why would you do that when you've made long-term capital investments in hardware that depreciates and you need the Bitcoin price to increase a lot over time for those investments to make sense? So I think that these 51% security model theoretical attacks are sort of easy enough to articulate for people to feel confident saying them, but they just haven't really appeared in the wild. And when we dig into them, there's always an assumption that, you know, uh, you can perform a 51% attack with very little cost, the costless 51% attack fallacy. Right. And it often it also includes the idea that you could quickly harness large amounts of compute power, maybe purchase large amount of ASICs, utilize or rent large amounts of GPU power from cloud data centers. And that's just not how it works. Well, and, and here's another problem with it. It assumes that the US dollar that you're making your 
attack profits in has the same security as Bitcoin. Because if you were to, say, take out massive shorts on, you know, derivatives exchanges, crash the price, and then capitalize on those shorts, guess what? You're getting sued or going to jail. Like, no one's going to let you do that. There is no trustless money like Bitcoin on the fiat side of that trade. So I don't think you really can do these, you know, theoretically profitable attacks because you don't have a secure way to take payment in dollars when you manage to crash the Bitcoin price. Yeah, good luck. Good luck cashing out all your cheap sats now. <laughs> okay, I, I'm try I shouldn't laugh because I actually think it is really good for us to try to find what seems to be the critiques with either the most credentials or perhaps the most momentum online and try to look at them and figure out maybe where they've gone wrong a little bit because it's 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 usually not a surprising misunderstanding it's kind of oftentimes when you come in looking for a particular result you're kind of blind to the things that take your knees out and uh, i think that's the case in this uh, you know oh the the issuance schedule is going to make it too expensive to run the bitcoin network so therefore it's going to collapse i have seen this argument for a very long time and i i swear it's cyclical we kind of cycle around different kind of go-to criticisms and when one kind of gets enough popular debunking another one crops back up and it just seems to be we kind of keep going through and having these conversations over and over again but i think the rebuttals are stronger and clearer than they ever have been you know because every time it comes up we get a chance to kind of refine our thinking about it rechallenge our assumptions and address it and i hope every every time we can communicate it a little clearer too so if you pay for a blue check mark you can write tweets that are like little blog posts now yeah is, is that what you you have to pay to get that feature because i've sure noticed some people can write long tweets really long tweets turns out i don't really like really long tweets oh no no i mean that's not what twitter is for i don't think essentially mira hurley is just making the assumption that security is about spend as a percentage of market cap and she doesn't demonstrate that anywhere Right. That's true. <laughs> she doesn't actually validate her own argument. She just says that. she repeats it many times confidently. Yeah. Well, because it's said so many times. I've seen that said plenty myself. So. Is Visa secure because it charges a 1% fee? I don't think so. Well, you know, we are, we shouldn't be on our soapboxes, though, because uh, we do have some accounting for in the feedback this week. Speaking of which, remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com. I think I'm going to be all caught up with email this weekend. So congrats. Thank you. Would you throw it all through chat GPT? <laughs> <laughs> uh, also consider joining our show Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. Details in the show notes. Yes, yes. Now, I got a couple of emails, including a really long one that I haven't responded to yet. And I just wanted to pull out two comments from a listener who listened from the beginning to the current episode. So thank you so much. But you did notice some inconsistencies. And we really appreciate our community helping us, uh, you know, follow through on things we say. To quote, on episode 69, you said you would increase the sats required to be read on the show from to 2K from 1K, but that didn't happen. Not that I am complaining, just a remark. So what happened there? We had an offhand comment that on episode 69, because lol 69, we would increase the minimum sats to be read out on air. And then why didn't we follow through on that? Well, um, probably because... We were being so mature, uh, having a laugh about episode 69 that we didn't deserve to follow through on that. I mean, you know, it's, I, I was thinking in part, it's because we like the boost so damn much that we don't really want to raise the bar. And if you're getting your sats by earning them through fountain, it takes quite a while to get to even a thousand sats, unless you're like me on a road trip. 
at the same time, I've been thinking about what would it really take to make the boost sustain the show? And you know, it would really require a higher amount, right? Because when you think about them in dollar amounts, a thousand sats is appreciated. But it's, if, if it was the only source of income, like if, say, the market got really bad, I don't know, it's really tricky. I've been thinking about it for the JB shows, too. Like, what's that number need to be to actually make it pay for the show so that way it doesn't actually need a sponsor or doesn't have to be just like this side hobby that gets attention when work is taken care of? I think that is a tension, especially in podcasts podcasting because this show is a labor of love it's not a commercial endeavor you support the show donating your time and expertise and you know and you're a professional podcaster so you're really doing a like a public service and i think that bitcoin podcasts are especially difficult to monetize because you end up shilling some product and then you don't want to say like critique of it for example the cold card we love the cold card it's a great product we love it if cold card wanted to sponsor us we'd be pretty comfortable with that right well there actually is a very specific criticism of the way coin kite does cold card firmware builds they include a date in the firmware build and this means that the builds are not really reproducible because you have to set the system date to match the build date and so wallets uh maybe wallets recovery or wallets comparison there, there's a fellow who compares wallets and reproducibility of uh, wallet software he pointed this out but cold card hasn't really fixed that it's a very mild criticism but would we be able to bring that up if they were our sponsor i don't think so i don't think they would be happy if we did that and we would have a financial incentive not to care there's less of a of a reliable good actor pool to pull from that is not maybe taking a risk a little bit and and honestly the people who are making money in the crypto bitcoin media space are absolute scammers i was just reminded of bitboy who promotes pump and dumps is promoting unregistered securities who's taking money from projects to pump and dump their coins i mean this is someone who you know frankly i think probably should have a hefty financial penalty and be banned from doing this kind of thing and that's the sort of person that makes a lot of money in this space even the top bitcoin podcasters who are making money they're taking advertising dollars from online casinos it is a tricky line to walk because you know you could easily especially when you're trying to pay for food for the family you could easily talk to yourself well personal responsibility bitcoin is all about personal responsibility right you could see how you could backwards your your logic into uh accepting that deal the element it really comes down to is is the podcast valuable how valuable is it that's what the value for value exchange should be and what would it be like if the podcast isn't there and it may just be that like you know maybe life goes on and people don't need the podcast or maybe it is that the podcast gives enough signal that makes sense to something that's going to be have a lot of ramifications in people's life later on i i don't know where it sits but i'm trying to formulate the right way to talk about it so you know that all that's still a learning process it's a long way to answer this to say that's why we haven't raised it to 2k yet because there's just so much to think about and i think also one potential downside of boosts is that audience capture is always a big problem with projects like this because the people who write in you know we really appreciate it we love the engagement but they are the one percent of listeners most people listen silently and i know that because i'm a silent listener i listen to a lot of podcasts and i very rarely interact and that's just i like listening you know i don't always want to necessarily interact and i've noticed that over time especially i think with um 
shows that do a lot of like Twitter and, and live stream and other types of engagement, they eventually pivot very solidly, I think, in, in many cases to their most active users, which are non-representative of their sort of massive silent listener base. And that, I think, is also another tricky thing. And so boosts are really cool technology, but like every technology, you know, there are potential drawbacks. And so we're trying to think about that and figure it out slowly. Interestingly enough, we were just having a conversation on Linux Unplugged about how week after week after week, we have multiple boosts from listeners that have been listening for maybe a decade, have never reached out, have never come to a meetup, but have decided to boost in for that week, you know? And I think it's something about having that button in the player. Because I, like you, have obviously been listening to podcasts for a very long time. And I have never written into any podcast ever until Boost came around. And now I've boosted multiple podcasts with notes and feedback and encouragement. And I'll even kind of give them like a low key, like, you know, when I notice that they get something really good in the production, I'll kind of boost in and encourage them to keep doing that because it's like, that's one of the powers I have as a, as a booster is I can say, Hey, the way you did this worked really well. Here's a row of grandpa ducks as, as, you know, a uh, exchange for getting, for nailing that. That was really valuable for me. Yeah, that's a good point. It's weird. I always hear the opposite and I know I should not throw stones. I live in a glass house, but I hear the lack of pop filters. And I just wish that those podcasts had boost enabled so I could boost in and say, hey, here's some money yeah. to sweeten the blow. <laughs> but you need a pop filter. Hey, a, a spoonful of Satoshis helps the medicine go down. So our emailer continues. On episode 70, you said that Pitar sent the largest boost in the show's history at 222,222 sats. But didn't Sir a send two boosts of 1.3 million sats on episode 57? Yeah, that sounds right. Right. So what we do, our system here is every booster for the week uh, gets in our show doc. So like every show has a doc. That's everything we talked about, our notes. And so everybody gets credited in that doc and that's stored forever. But we, until recently, don't really have a way to link all of them together. Now, Wes is actually working on a system that keeps track of the boosts that have come in and can kind of, you know, keep track of how much is boosted, how much one person is boosted, even if they've boosted from multiple different apps and the last time they boosted and total amounts and all that kind of stuff. So we could do some sort of recognition or something at some point, but he's beginning to build the backend scripting that compiles all of that to make it more, you know, automatic and programmatic. So we don't miss things like that. Very, very cool. So thank you so much for those comments. And I will respond to our emails this weekend and on to the boost. Do, 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 do. And Eric 99 came in with 50,000 sets. And it just says, stay humble, stack sats. Great advice. Thank you so much for the boost. Truly the best advice. If I could add one more thing, I know it's such a simple, beautiful catch line, but if I could add one more thing, it would be invest in yourself. Stay humble, invest in yourself, stack sats. Pitar boosts in, what is that, a row of hockey sticks? Yeah, yeah we did have something for 7,777 sats. Somebody should boost and remind us. <laughs> Pitar continues, between Noster, Stacker News, and Podcasting 2.0, I feel like Lightning Tips is taking on a life of its own. Dave Jones set up a site, v4vsats.com, to estimate the total sats flowing through the podcasting portion of the ecosystem. And I just pulled up that site and you can see it. I mean, it's really interesting to, I guess, because he has data from the podcast index.org node. He's just looking at 
uh, the value flowing through, the transaction count, and the number of unique senders. I like to keep an eye on it just to kind of as a health metric of how all the podcasts are doing. And I'm pretty sure that if you look March 3rd through about the 5th, there's a giant jump in the uh, sat sent. And um, that was uh, LUP 500, right around LUP 500, where we got just absolute phenomenal support from the audience. It's really neat to see, though, across aggregate, across all the podcasts. Smart Growth writes in, love that name, 5,000 sats. We actually have a, to go online, we, oh, we actually have to go online to choose our electric down here in Texas. And I know a lot of otherwise smart people who choose the variable rate because they thought an emergency was such a low probability. But every year we seem to have one. Also, I got my BTC pay server up and going, but Start9 hasn't figured out integrated R, R turn or open interfaces. So I have to set one up on my Raspberry Pi, which so far is too much time. Love the show. Please set up a subscription model like the Survival Podcast. Hmm. Okay. Subscription models with sats. Is that a thing? Oak node, you can run on your lightning node, and then that can tie in with our LNURL, which we're using via Albi. So that's possible. I guess I'll link to how you can do that in the show notes. Thank you for the boost, smart growth. So what is this Arton issue? It sounds like maybe uh, he's having difficulty passing his BTC pay server interface through to the open internet, perhaps? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is he's, or it's a typo, but I'm thinking he's having a hard time getting like the interface is sorted out. So he has it maybe on his network or something. So he's going to set it up on a Raspberry Pi and just have that on the direct network is what I'm thinking. So this is difficult because when you start building servers with Raspberry Pis, you realize that it's difficult to get through your router to the open internet. And now you have to get into networking to do it. And I don't know if there's a really easy way to give advice there. Maybe a router running OpenWRT that allows you to pass ports from a local IP onto your public IP. Or there's also this, um, oh gosh, what's it called? The um, BDNS, uh, which gives you the ability to get kind of a free domain name that you can then kind of proxy to if you have the correct client. Yeah, boy, if you're storing any of your large Bitcoin stash on any device on your LAN, you'd have to give me a pretty strong argument for why you should be opening up any bound, any inbound remote transactional type services to the internet um, and why that shouldn't just go like on a $5 VPS somewhere that you could tail scale into from the back end for administration. Um, you know, like I have a note here and that's the line I won't cross. I won't open up inbound ports on my firewall to it and bring traffic on. Now I have cheated because I have allowed Tor and I have allowed tail scale. So I've made it work that way. But um, public IP with inbound traffic, it will not, not on my land. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, hard to hear if you're trying to go the sort of node in a box route necessarily, unless they have something very clever for exposing a service like BTC pay server. So, uh, you know, if I had more time, I'd, I'd be interested in setting up uh, a new node in a box from, from scratch to sort of, you know, get that full experience and see how uh, workable it is. But um, yeah, I wonder. Bones boosts in a row of ducks or swans? 2,222 sets. Oh, it's yeah, sevens. The sevens is swans then. Uh, okay. Right. Okay. Row no, you're supposed to let from... them boost in and correct us. Jeez. Just... Uh, <laughs> giving away the milk. This is why Mulvad and CoinKite aren't sponsoring us. We just give them too much airtime. <laughs> what if the top mining pools agree to only build on their own and each other's blocks? 
Even if it's not one entity doing a 51% attack, each pool would find more blocks than before. Reminds me of something you talked about in the summer about miners trying to steal the previous block rather than working on the next block. Yeah, this is a really interesting potential attack where you have groups of miners colluding to essentially um, not include certain miners' blocks on their chain. And I think that it's difficult to pull off this attack from a game theory perspective because miners have a pretty high upfront spend and operating expenses with the energy that they're producing. They also, many of them right now, are publicly traded companies. And so they have a fiduciary duty to sort of always maximize value for the shareholder. And the way that Bitcoin mining seems to have evolved is that the most effective way to make money is to be an honest miner. And performing a tax on the network is a sort of uncertain payout with a high upfront cost and potential other social and legal costs, depending on what happens. So I think that the TLDR is that Bitcoin is an economic system that incentivizes honest participation, and that includes mining, at least so far. Yeah, I, I maintain that. I think I maintain that. I think one of the most brilliant insights Satoshi has was how to align individual incentives to create a system that works. Sir lurks a lot. The Sir lurks a lot comes in with a elite row of sats. Watching the sat stream in, watching the streaming sat spinner as I listen makes me smile. Voluntarily, automatically paying as I go in near real time feels so much better to me. Like, this is how it should be. I only have my own experience as a listener to inform me, but I believe embracing the value for value model brings benefits on many levels. Call them second or third order effects that are all positive in a direction for all participants. The magic, the key of the perpetuation of the value reciprocation cycle is the conversation. People love great presentation, but what they earn for, yearn for, and need are good conversations. From this comes connectedness, and that fosters community. It's just basic to the human experience. Lurks a lot continues for another set of lead sets. Maybe that's why I love value for value so much. The more I embrace it, the more it seems obvious, kind of like Bitcoin. Thanks again, DNC, for such high Sigma content. Keep the conversation rolling, too. It's good work for all of us that you do. Outstanding value. One of my most favorite podcasts. I appreciate the education, the knowledge, and the experiences you relate, your opinions, sense of humor, and humility. Stay humble. Stack sats. Wow. Lurks a lot. That's a beautiful, I mean, with the praisiness aside, that's a beautiful bit of insight you've had. And I agree. I really enjoy hearing my tweet trigger a conversation in the podcast that I have boosted and then hearing their, the, the host thoughts on it. And then I, always, so I often will tune in again and keep that rolling. And that feels like such a tighter level of connection to those podcasts. Um, another thing that I've done recently, if it, you may have seen me boosting them on Fountain, is another podcast that's going around that I think is just great. And I just kind of want to send in some support and say, keep on going and some encouragement. And then, you know, seeing them receive that and talk about that or hearing them. It's, it's a great experience. Yeah. Thanks so much for the kind words. And that's kind of what has always attracted me to podcasting. When you have this, these voices in your ear, it feels like you're sitting in the same room with the conversation and there's this sense of connection. And maybe it's an illusion because before Value for Value, there wasn't this direct way to sort of connect back to the, the podcast. But I, uh, I really feel what you're saying. Thank you. Danny42 boosts in a mega row of ducks. Is, or is this mega? Uh, 22,222 sats. I call them a row of McDucks or Grandpa McDucks or Uncle McDucks, whatever you like. 
So McDucks, I was a Bitcoiner all the way back in 2011 to 2012 due to my love for open source software and mostly saw it only as a thing to try. But after losing my seed due to a formatting the wrong uh. hard drive, I gave up and only recently went back to it now after realizing just how screwed the modern financial system is. <laughs> wow. Yep. That's about it, Danny. Welcome to the ride, buddy. <laughs> I know. Ups and downs. Well, Danny, we're glad that you're back. And I'm sorry for the potentially high price of knowledge that you paid. Being an early adopter is hard. If it makes you feel any better, Danny, you're probably, in the grand scheme of things, still an early adopter. So there is that. Uh, Scott comes in with 2,000 sats. I was at an impromptu speaking competition last weekend and was giving, quote, banking turmoil as a topic. Thanks to you two, I knew exactly what to say. Keep up the great work. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, nice. How about that? What are the nice. chances? Oh, gosh. That's like my Christmas present. Talk about banking turmoil for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Robert, no kidding. Only 10 minutes? <sighs> I don't know if I can do that. Mere Mortals podcast boosts in 3,333 sats. Bitcoin Dad tuned into my humble podcast. Lol, not at all. It's a great podcast. You host with Fireside, so I had a quick look at their features, and I'm almost certain you can do episode art. I believe there is also a cover art tab. If you're referring to the images links in each chapter, then you're out of luck. I briefly moved my RSS onto Fireside, but they didn't have that feature, so I went over to Buzzsprout. Some of the other hosts also do this, but the UI on Buzzsprout is probably the slickest from what I've seen. Long message, smiley face. Mere Mortals has a really nice production of uh, episodes and stuff. You can see that in the uh, Podverse app very clearly. I love the idea of being able to show visuals too as we're talking about something. Like how many times are we talking about, like a great example is something Lynn Alden maybe talked about. And there's like a quintessential chart that you could show as the chapter art during that segment. It burns me up inside that Fireside has not added these features. They implemented some of the early podcasting 2.0 stuff and they just stopped short of chapters and value block. And it burns me up. Uh, Buzzsprout is definitely something worth looking into. Uh, I think Podbean might support this as well as potentially RSS.com. These are all platforms that make hosting a podcast real easy. Instead of having to do it yourself. Jin from Atik comes in with 3,000 sats. I was gladly surprised by the show notes from last week. Thanks. I went to the Bitcoin meetup in Geneva and someone recommended me this book. Thank God for Bitcoin, the creation, corruption and redemption of money. It's thrilling and deeply explains the creation of money and the corruption behind it. Great book. And I recommend it. Also, for better privacy, I switched from Firefox to LibreWolf. PrivacyTest.org. Best to you guys. You know what? Second or third person in the last two weeks has recommended Thank God for Bitcoin. And I have come away with the impression that if you have individuals or yourself that you're trying to communicate Bitcoin to that come from a religious context, I think this book could be really beneficial. Regarding LibraWolf, didn't you mention on one of your podcasts that some of these Firefox forks don't have large teams behind them and have had trouble staying on top of um, security updates? Yeah, that can definitely be a thing. You just got to watch each project, take each one on its own. I've heard LibreWolf before. I don't know personally. Um, right. But I know that I once tried a Firefox clone. It wasn't LibreWolf. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then I realized, oh, wait, I'm not getting updates. And then I looked <laughs> yeah. at it. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, Jin continued with another 2,500 sats. I just saw my LinkedIn profile has been visited by one guy from the California State Assembly and another one from the city of San Jose, the capital of Silicon Valley. Should I worry that I'm getting tracked down from listeners that want to stop Bitcoin propaganda? <laughs> anyway, I'll do my best to continue to spread the word. My hope is that more people use Bitcoin and one day it'll take over fiat money. 
Same is true for commodities like silver and gold. It's best to self-custody, even in small quantities. Best. If the California State Assembly, as somebody there and somebody from the San Jose Capitol were getting interested in people that are following Bitcoin technology, I think that'd be actually a positive development. They could use some edification. Right. If it's the NSA putting you on the kidnapping list, they're not going to, uh, you know, do it from a government <laughs> employee account. So yeah, yeah, they're not, yeah. They, they tap yeah. into the LinkedIn backend. So you'd never that's, even know. That's what they created Tor for. Oh, right. Our last boost comes in from Zoresmi with 5,000 sats and just a thumbs up, thumbs up right back at you. Appreciate it. Thank you, everybody who boosts into the show. It means more than ever these days. And uh, if you get some value from the pod and would like to send it back to us with a little message, we greatly appreciate it. It also helps us stack sats and uh, invest in the ongoing production of the pod. So we really appreciate that. And hearing from you means a lot. There's a couple of right now at this point in time, there's really two paths ahead of you, my friend. You can go get a podcast app at podcastapps.com or newpodcastapps.com, your choice, and grab one of the podcasting 2.0 apps and join the revolution. And then you can boost right there from your podcast app while you're listening. Or if you really like your app, keep keep it. That's fine. Keep it. Just go get Albie. Get Albie.com. Top that off either built in using MoonPay or some something like the Cash app. And then head on over to the podcast index. Find the Bitcoin dad pod on the podcast index and boost right there from the web page. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. It all makes it real easy once you're set up and you have the power of lightning right there in Albi. And it's a good team, open source project uh, with some good infrastructure behind it too. This has been the Bitcoin dad pod recorded on Friday, April 21st, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin dad and I'm here as always with... It's a me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>